Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We want to thank you both for being here. Um, we were just remarking in the back, I, typically we have uh, witnesses that uh, it's been really amazing have generally had some degree of overlap in thinking and it's really helped our uh, committee, if you will, develop bipartisan consensus on so many issues. I will say that today that's not going to be the case. I'm stunned by the, I really am stunned by the testimony uh, of one of our witnesses today. The, the issue of our national debt um, has been an issue that uh, our top military officials, uh, presidents uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, secretaries of state uh, on both sides of the aisle have considered to be a, a major threat to our nation and uh, certainly limits our ability to respond to crises. Um, I've been in several meetings today uh, where other countries have been concerned about how we're going to be able to react to certain things. So uh, I really am stunned by the testimony of one of our witnesses today, and I look forward to, to probing that, having uh, received a summary of those statements. I, I think that uh, it's bipartisan uh, in, in the sense that we've got to figure out a way to come together and grind through the tough issues that our nation is facing to ensure that we don't uh, continue uh, with the generational theft that is occurring right now where we in essence run deficits that future gener generations will pay and again it's been a significant uh, national security issue um, it's something that I think is important for us and therefore I'm glad we're having the hearing today and certainly look forward to the questioning that will take place so with that uh, uh, I'll turn to our ranking member and uh, I'm sure he will have other comments to make relative uh, to, to what's getting ready to happen. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm not sure which of the testimonies you're taking. <laughs> well, look to the So, left. Mr. Ambassador, I'll try to help you out during the course of the hearing. Uh, I, I want to welcome both of our witnesses here, and I, have, um, I, I am familiar with their statements, and I think there's a lot in both of these statements that are important for us going forward with our national security, and I look forward to this hearing because there's two sides of the ledger. Obviously, the amount of debt that we incur every year is a matter of national security. We have to borrow the money. We borrow from Americans, but we also borrow from foreign interest, and that should be of concern to the United States. So we also should pay our bills. That should be of concern uh, to this country. But I just point out on that side of the ledger, when you look at the cost of U.S. borrowing, when you look at the desirability of U.S. securities, the international community doesn't seem to be too concerned about the amount of debt that we're issuing from the point of view of the attractiveness and the cost of U.S. debt. Having said that, I agree that we need to do a better job on fiscal responsibility, and we should be paying more of our current expenses, which deal with how much money we spend and how much taxes we collect. Which brings me to the other side of the ledger, dealing with national security. I think it's critically important the amount of money we, for example, spend for our defense and uh, for our military. That's an important part of national security. The amount of money we invest in uh, diplomacy and development assistance is part of our national security. So if we were to say, look, we will have less debt, but let's cut our military in half and let's cut our national development assistance in half, I think that would compromise U.S. security. So how do we invest our money? But the other part of that, Mr. Chairman, is how do we invest 
in America? How do we invest in our roads, our bridges, our energy infrastructure? How do we invest in education, in educating our workforce? How do we deal with climate change, which is presenting an international security issue? All that requires expenditures on the spending side. So as we look at national security and the amount of debt that we acquire every year, you're, we have to be concerned about debt. But we also have to be concerned about whether we're spending money as, uh, at the level we should for the United States to maintain its position as the world superpower. And I think there's, there, so I, I think both of our witnesses will give us different perspectives, but I agree with both in that we have to be concerned about both sides of the ledger. And I look forward uh, to the um, testimony, and I look forward to a robust discussion here today. Now you're stuck. Well, yeah, I, I, uh, I am actually. Um, so I, I hate that our distinguished uh, council on foreign relations leader is uh, is actually uh, participating in this the way that it begins. But uh, I do thank him for lending a staff member to us to run our our uh, committee. And uh, I turn to both of you. Um, our first witness is the Honorable Richard Haas, President of the Council on Foreign Relations. Our second witness today is. Nira Tandon, President and CEO for the Center for American Progress. I want to thank you both for being here um, and sharing your comments. I think you all know the drill, and that is uh, you, we've received your written testimony. If you could summarize that and then look to questions, uh, I would appreciate it. But uh, thank you both again for being here. And uh, again, on a topic that I, I thought there would be general uniformity around, but apparently uh, already because this may be perceived to be a reflection on somebody, I don't know, but uh, I, I do look forward to the testimony. Thank you very much. Mr. Haas, if you begin. Okay, I'll start over. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank you and the committee for the opportunity to testify. Just want to make clear that I'm speaking for myself and not for the Council on Foreign Relations. But I do want to commend you and your colleagues here for holding this hearing and for considering the issues of debt and national security in an integrated matter. It's, it's important that they're not seen as distinct. There's an important degree of overlap. What makes this issue particularly difficult is that is an example of what I would describe as a slow motion crisis. And slow motion crises tend to be phenomena that are underway and that, that have potentially substantial or even devastating consequences that will kick in gradually or only after the passage of considerable time. There's good and bad news in this. The good news is that to a large degree we know where things are heading and we have time to do something about it. The bad news is that slow motion crises tend to generate little or no sense of priority but rather tend to promote complacency. And the problem then is that we will forfeit the opportunity not just to prevent the crisis but we end, we end up denying ourselves remedies that are not severe. The debt problem is, is straightforward, I would think. According to the CBO and others, U.S. public debt is fast approaching a level plus or minus of $14 trillion. That's roughly equal to 75% of our current GDP. In a decade, it'll probably be, debt will probably be between 80 and 90% of GDP. It's not a question, of, uh, rather it is a question of when and not if the debt comes to exceed or far exceed GDP. And that could happen uh, in 15 years or even sooner. 
let me say that this is a problem that uh, not only will not fix itself, but it will grow worse. The principal driver, the principal driver of spending increases are entitlements, and that will become more of a factor as Americans of my generation uh, retire in large numbers and live longer lives. Second, interest rates are uh, at or near historic lows and are far more likely to rise than fall over the next few decades. Now, specific projections as to the size of the debt and what it will cost to finance necessarily vary depending upon assumptions, assumptions about economic growth, spending, taxation, and interest rates, but the trend is clear, and the trend is not our friend. There are a good many strategic consequences of our growing indebtedness, and let me just go through them rather quickly. First, the need to finance the debt will absorb an ever-increasing amount of dollars and an ever-increasing share of the U.S. federal budget. This will mean proportionally fewer resources will be available for national security, including defense, intelligence, homeland security, foreign assistance, and diplomacy. There will as well be fewer dollars available for discretionary domestic programs, ranging from education and infrastructure modernization to scientific research and law enforcement. Second, our inability to deal with our debt challenge will detract from the appeal around the world of the American political and economic model. It will, will make others less likely to want to emulate us and more wary of depending on us. The result would be a world that is less democratic and increasingly less deferential to U.S. security concerns. Third, mounting debt will leave the United States more vulnerable to the whims of markets and the machinations of governments. Already approximately half of U.S. debt is held by foreigners. China is one of the two largest lenders, as you pointed out, Senator. I am not sanguine that China would, would not decide to slow or stop accumulating U.S. debt as a signal of displeasure or even sell debt amid, say, a crisis over Taiwan or the South China Sea. Fourth, mounting debt could absorb funds that would otherwise be invested at home or abroad. This will depress already modest levels of economic growth. High levels of debt and debt financing will increase concerns about the government's willingness to maintain the dollar's value. This will cause lenders to demand higher returns on their loans, something that will increase the cost of debt financing and further crowd out other spending and further depress growth. This is what we call a vicious, not a virtuous cycle. Fifth, mounting debt limits American flexibility and resilience. There is no way of stating in the abstract what is the right level of debt for the United States or knowing what level of debt is sustainable. But the United States does not want to make high levels of debt the new normal. We need flexibility should there be another financial crisis that requires large-scale fiscal stimulus or an unexpected major national security challenge that demands a costly response. Keeping debt levels low enough to allow for a surge, essentially to give ourselves some cushion, uh, to allow for a surge in spending without triggering an even worse debt crisis seems to be a prudent hedge and worth paying a reasonable premium for. Sixth and last, mounting debt will hasten the demise of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. This will happen as a result of a loss of confidence in U.S. financial management and the related concern that what the United States will need to do to finance its debt will be at odds with what it should be doing to manage the U.S. and indirectly the world economy. And make no mistake about it, a post-dollar world will be both more costly and one of less leverage 
when it comes to imposing dollar-related sanctions. Mr. Chairman, I have a number of uh, suggestions as to what should and should not be done to address this looming crisis, one that threatens American prosperity and American national security alike. I look forward to the comments and questions from yourself and your colleagues. Thank you very much, Ms. Tandon. Uh, thank you so much, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee. My name is Neera Tandon. I'm the president of the Center for American Progress, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity to testify today. I do hope we actually find some areas of common ground. I actually see some areas of common ground uh, on these issues between uh, Mr. Haas and myself, Ambassador Haas and myself. CAP is an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to improving the lives of Americans through practical ideas and actions. At CAP, we believe that a robust middle class is vitally important to a growing, uh, growing a stronger and more prosperous economy. And I know that's uh, a matter of concern for every member of this committee. I deeply appreciate the opportunity to speak to you on the broad topic of uh, America standing in the world and how our economic success is a critical component of that. In fact, I could not agree more that our economic strength as a nation uh, helps determine our international strength. Where I may have a different focus is the source of that strength. I believe that the strength of our middle class has long been a key, a key goal or key aspect of our international appeal. The American middle class is not only the engine of our nation's economic growth, it's a symbol of our ideals, a promise that no matter who you, what you look like or where you come from, you can succeed in the United States. Indeed, we have served as a bright beacon for economic opportunity. I can say personally, immigrants from every country, including my own parents, have come to our shores in search of a better future for themselves and their families. But truthfully, we are at a crossroads. We are failing in many ways to live up to that promise for America's families. I do believe that our national debt is a long-term problem that we have to solve. Leadership is needed to address that challenge. But I also believe that the struggles of the middle class and those trying to get into the middle class is an urgent problem, not just an urgent moral problem, but a challenge for economic growth writ large. While the re recovery from the recession is, has been important, but does remain incom incomplete, there is so far little evidence that U.S. government debt is currently creating obstacles to further economic growth or threatening our national security. Now let me say, to find areas of comedy, again, we do need to tackle the national debt over the long term. The question is, where are our priorities? In fact, when you look at our recovery, it has outpaced the recovery of our allies who have seemingly exclusively focused on debt. The European Union has grown at a much lower level, 1.5% compared to the United States, 2.5%, and is, continue, is predicted to continue a much slower pace of growth than the United States. And it has truthfully taken a more austerity, a position of greater austerity. Now, we have been told, uh, and we've heard time and time again, that, uh, that the national debt will lead to higher national interest rates. That 
That is usually how it works. However, we really have not seen higher interest rates in the period that we're in. CBA has been predicting, predicting for years that Treasury interest rate increases were just around the corner. In February 2013, for example, CBO predicted that the interest rate on 10-year Treasury bonds would be 4.3% in 2016. On April 4th, 2016, the interest rate was actually 1.78%. Moreover, we have heard claims that our debt-to-GDP ratio is a sign of impending crisis. But truthfully, we really have not seen that as well. We've had projections that our debt-to-GDP ratio would at this point be hovering over 90%. We are now at 74%. Other countries have sustained higher debt-to-GDP ratios without experiencing a debt crisis. Now again, in the area of comedy, I'd like to say that we should address these challenges. The question really is in what way we do so. When it comes to addressing deficits, we do believe, CAP does believe, that we should have a, a balanced approach. We have proposed a plan to actually eliminate the deficit over the next several decades to get us to zero, to get to a place where we're actually addressing the debt overall. But we believe that's a balanced package, a balanced package that requires additional revenue as well as savings in a variety of programs. We as ourselves have promoted savings in the, in the Medicare program. So in short, I'd just like to thank everyone for the ability to participate in this uh, in this hearing. I do think that America's strength is, is in part its economic standing, but we see in the national debate we have today on a whole range of issues that what's really concerning a lot of Americans is not only our ability to address debt, but also how this economy is functioning, how it's producing uh, prosperity who that prosperity is going towards, and whether all Americans can share in that prosperity. Thank you all very much. Well, thank you very much uh, for, for your testimony and being here. And um, I, I, I just want to say this certainly was not a hearing to talk about uh, the necessary um, solutions. I agree oh, okay. the middle class has had issues. It's more to talk about the strategic uh, problem of having uh, uh, the debt that we have. So it seems like maybe there is some agreement. It certainly was not uh, an attempt to attack any administration, but just to point out that as a nation, having huge amounts of debt does limit our abilities over time and is something that hurts future generations. So maybe your assignment was misunderstood. But with that, uh, what I'd like to do is, is uh, turn to our ranking member. I'd like to interject as we move along. I know there'll be numbers of questions, and I want to thank everybody for being here and participating. Well, well thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank you for this hearing, because I think, um, and I, I, I do understand that the purpose of this hearing, that debt has an impact on our national security. As I said in my opening statements, it has an impact on our ability to directly fund national security budgets, whether it's Department of Defense or Department of State. It has an impact on America's confidence and reputation globally. And it has an impact on our reliance on other countries to buy our, our security. So it's, it's, it clearly is an area of concern. Uh, I am proud to have been part of the, of the Congress and, and have casted my vote 
in the Congress of the United States to balance the federal budget. And we had a balance, and we did it the hard way, the old-fashioned way. We raised taxes and we cut spending. We did both. People said we couldn't do both. We did both, and we balanced the federal budget. And despite the, 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 the forecast that this would have a negative impact on our economy because we were cutting spending and we were raising taxes, in other words, taking money out of the economy, it had a major plus to the economy. The economy grew dramatically after we balanced the federal budget. So uh, I, I agree with the chairman that we need to take a look at the size of the deficit. Uh, the point I bring up, though, is that when we went through the recession in 2007 to 9, Democrats and Republicans came together and said, look, we got to incur debt. We got to put more money in the economy. We've got to cut taxes and we've got to spend money in order to get this economy growing. And uh, we recognized at that point that increasing the debt, although it's something we don't like doing, it was necessary in order to get our economy going. So I just want to make the point that debt and deficits in and of itself, you got to be where you are in the economy. And where, where is it the right time to do what we should do? I happen to believe today we are wealthy enough and strong enough that we should have a balanced budget. We should be able to get to a balanced budget over a reasonable number of years. I believe that. So I, I agree with the, the emphasis, and it's not worth taking the risk of these large debts today. So we, we should be, we're strong enough to be able to, to deal with it, and we, we should deal with it. But I, I do point out and I, uh, the, 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 the fact that the United States has had one of the strongest recoveries from the deficit. We've had now, I think it is 72 consecutive months of $14 million, 14 million job growth. In 2014 and 15, we saw over 5 million private sector jobs that, that grew in our economy. And when you compare that to some of the countries in Europe that went through austerity, and Great Britain's a good example, they went through austerity after they thought they had recovered from the recession, only to find that they were back in basically a recession. So the one thing we don't want to do for national security is be in a type of an economy where middle class families can't do well and we're in a, basically a recession losing jobs. That's not in our national security interest. And I think that was the only point we were trying to make in regards to the size of the debt. But we're in agreement. We're in agreement that we should be, have a game plan today to bring our budget, certainly with less debt, uh, annual de uh, deficits, but clearly to try to balance the federal the, the federal debt. So uh, I don't know if I have any specific questions, but I, I, I'll ask both. Uh, where do you see a disagreement, or do you agree what I just said, as far as the debt not being a one-dimensional issue as it relates to our national security, that it is a tool that has to be used at times, depending on our economic conditions? Uh, Ambassador Haas, do you disagree with that? or no, Senator, I, yeah. As is often the case, the devil's probably in the details. Uh, and I don't think anyone would make the argument or should make the argument that, that deficits or debt per se is bad. It depends upon the scale of it, the absolute scale, the trajectory, what sort of assumptions you plug in about where the economy is going. I also, I've never heard anyone say we ought to do something dramatic that you know, overnight, we ought to, for example, try to bring down a 75% of GDP debt to something like 50 or 25%. There's no reason to do things dramatic that would uh, destroy economic growth. So no one, well, I think what the real question is one, it's less where we are, sir, than it's our trajectory. Yeah. And what worries me is about the trajectory and where, where, where we're heading. 
And I simply think that, I'd make two points, that again, it's all assumption driven, but all things being equal, I think there's a powerful, powerful probability, overwhelming probability that all things being equal, the debt problem will get significantly worse with the passage of time. I, I find that hard to, uh, hard to uh, challenge. And secondly, and the good news is, if we were to do some fairly modest things, I understand from Chairman Corker, this is not a conversation uh, about remedies, but the good news is we haven't reached the point of crisis. And there are things that we could and should do now that would not be all that dramatic that would put us on a much more sustainable trajectory. And again, I think it's really important not only that we avoid crisis, but we give ourselves cushion. Look what happened you know, after 9-11. We had enormous spending needs in the national security. And after 2008, we had enormous spending requirements in order to stimulate, to jumpstart the economy. That Part of the lesson of that is we never quite know when we may have to do somewhat similar things again for economic or strategic reasons. So why would we want to allow ourselves to assume a trajectory that would deny us those options if and most likely when we once again have enormous needs that come uh, somewhat out of the blue. So I think the opportunity for the Congress and for who's ever in the White House and the rest is to begin to put this country on a trajectory which I think is uh, it, it's sustainable and it's, um, it's responsible. And I think that's what this is about. I, I agree with everything you just said. And there, there are two major factors that we can control, and that is how we spend money and how we raise money. And yes, a lot will depend on deficits on economic circumstances, and some of which we control, some of which we don't control. And certainly the Congress is not in the position of trying to control economic growth, even though we think we can. So the two areas we can do our most good is how we spend our money and the amount we spend and how we collect our revenues. And uh, although we're not talking about remedies today, if we had a tax code that made some sense, it'd be a lot easier for us to be able to match revenues and spending, which has been one of our challenges going forward. I'll, I'll give, Dan, I'll give you a chance. Uh, you got one minute to respond <laughs> before I lose my time. I, I, I guess I would broadly agree. Uh, I would point out uh, that we can take steps uh, to address long-term debt challenges we have. We obviously have to address the deficit as well. I should note, though, that the deficit has come down dramatically. We've basically reduced the deficit from where, you know, deficit projections by two-thirds. Some of the steps we've done, we've taken to do that have not been steps that I think are the most, uh, the, the smartest steps, but that has happened. So Congress can act. One particular area that I think is important to note is that how that we have saved considerable amounts of money in our deficits and truly in our debt from Medicare savings. So I only point that out to say that the Congress can take steps, has taken steps, some in um, very bipartisan ways, some in less partisan, less bipartisan ways that has actually had a positive impact on these issues. And I hope that we can uh, have a balanced approach going forward as well. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. You know, when I took over the chairmanship of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, first thing I did was we developed a mission statement. It's pretty simple. To enhance the economic and national security of America. I think they're inextricably linked. Um, you know, the, the subject of this hearing is the strategic implications of U.S. debt. Uh, 
you know, Ronald Reagan, I think, taught us that you achieve peace through strength. And Mr. Howes, I just want to talk to you about, as we take a look around the world, and, and every one of these situations has its own root cause, but if we were economically stronger, if we weren't on this unsustainable debt path, and by the way, we just held a hearing in, in the Budget Committee. Uh, one of the things I've talked about is the 30-year projected deficit, according to CBO, is $103 trillion. $10 trillion the first decade, $28 trillion the second, $65 trillion the third. Net private asset base of America is $116 trillion. I mean, there's the magnitude <coughs> of the problem. Uh, but would China be pushing the South China Sea? Would Russia been so bold as to take over Crimea and push into eastern Ukraine? Would Iran be uh, rattling a saber as much as it is if America were stronger? Senator, it seems to me that strength is, is, is always a reflection of two things. One is, is existing capacity, and the other is the political consensus and will to make use of it. Uh, and I think that the perception around the world is less one about questions about American capacity and more to what extent that we are willing and able to use the capacity we have. And that's the uh, conclusion that I draw from you know, conversations with people around the world. Some of it stems from what the United States has chosen to do and more important not to do in the Middle East. Some of it also stems quite honestly from elements of what's seen as American political dysfunction High on my list is, for example, the inability to get a consensus to deal with things like TPP, which is ultimately as strategically damaging in Asia as what we didn't do in Syria was strategically damaging for the United States in the Middle East. Predictability, reliability are the currency of the realm if you're going to be a great power. And I think there's real questions. I can't tell you, you know, my hunch is China's doing what it's doing in the South China Sea, largely as a function of Chinese uh, strategic assertiveness. There's an interesting debate going on amongst the people I hang out with is how much the Chinese are turning to foreign policy and to some extent satisfying nationalism because it can no longer be satisfied with high rates of economic growth. Big debate going on uh, about that. But my, my, my general sense is the debt problem is not linked. I don't think you can link it to the challenge which we're facing in the world now. What worries me again is trajectory and future that it will raise questions about capacity, reliability, and will. So I, it seems to me it's part of a package of looming questions over America's ability to lead and act in the world. But again, you, you talked about willingness and capacity, and they're two different sides of, of a similar equation, though. And isn't it true that our adversaries, let's hope they don't become our full-blown enemies, sense a growing weakness? And doesn't that embolden them? Oh, absolutely. I think, again, people are constantly taking our measure, and they're taking our measure about what it is we're able to do, what it is we're prepared to do, and this is everything from international things we do in, in the world to things we, we, we do at home. And I think that what you, you always want to do with countries that are either existing or potential adversaries is you want to let them know if they act in certain assertive or aggressive ways, they're going to be uh, frustrated, shall we say. On the other hand, they do have other options. And what you want to do is steer, say, whether it's a country like China or Russia, towards a, a pattern or behavior where rather than overthrowing or overturning the apple cart, they basically say that would be a mistake and instead they're going to, at least in limited ways, uh, cooperate. And what that always suggests to me is you need a combination of strength to push back, 
basically a hedging strategy. On the other hand, you want to have diplomatic uh, openings uh, available that, that are reasonable. And that you always seems to, it seems to me you need the combination in how you approach any country. But, but it's definitely true. Not only is our willingness reduced, but our capacity, our capability has been reduced, correct? We, we used to have almost 800 ship Navy, now we're under 300. Well, quantity. And, 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 our, and our adversaries, our potential enemies know that. Look, there's no, there's no substitute for local military capability. And if we're talking about a rebalancing towards the Asia Pacific, we need to have the air forces and the naval forces on, on the scene. You never want to put the commander in chief in a position that something happens and your only response is either delayed or through escalation. You do want to have local uh, available responses. It's the best way both to deter, but also to respond in a way that doesn't lead to something much bigger than it is uh, that, that you'd really like to see. You do talk about, I think your third point was, leave the United States more vulnerable to the machinations of government. Uh, talk about, I mean, go through a scenario of what you con your concern would be. Let's say China decided to take the $1.2, $1.3 trillion worth of its debt and start selling it. I mean, can you kind of go through that scenario for me? Well, that's basically it, where you have a situation where, we'll use China as the example, there's a confrontation between the United States and China over the South China Sea, over Taiwan, something between Japan and China. We have alliance relationships that would likely uh, bring, us, uh, bring us in. I would never want to see the Chinese think that one of the ways they could leverage us and get us to think twice about taking certain actions potentially on behalf of allies, thinking about the economic pressure they could put on us. And it wouldn't take necessarily that much in terms of an announcement they weren't going to continue to acquire debt, the announcement that they were maybe going to sell some. Now, I understand there's people on the other side of it who would say they would never do that. It would mean they were shooting themselves in the foot twice over because they are large owners of American uh, you know, dollars and so forth. They wouldn't want to see those devalued. They obviously have a stake in their continued ability to export to us. But I don't think we should kid ourselves. If the Chinese saw a vital national interest like Taiwan, at stake or something in, with Japan or the South China Sea, they may very well calculate better to take a short-term economic hit and protect this nationalist interest as they see it than think about their own long-term economic health. And the harm that that caused America is somebody starts flooding the, the market with bonds, that's going to potentially drive up the cost of interest, which again starts uh, taking away resources for other things in America. Well, again, I don't want to reach a point, not just in a crisis where you have geopolitical overtones, I don't want if you will, the world to wake up, where markets basically decide the United States is on an unsustainable trajectory, and then people start demanding higher returns in order to continue to lend us money. I used the phrase before, that's, you know, that's, that's a vicious circle, a cycle, not a, not a virtuous one, because it gets more expensive for us to borrow, that in turn slows down the economy, and that's exactly the path we, we don't want to get on. And again, the good news is I think we can avoid putting ourselves in that position, but we've got to take action. It's just not going to, it's not going to sort itself out by itself. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member. Uh, welcome to our guests. Um, count me amongst those who think that this is a very important hearing to have. Count me amongst those who are uh, worried about the trend lines of American borrowing and debt, certainly, as the father of a seven-year-old and a Four-year-old, I think every day about the uh, burdens that we are leaving to the next generation if we don't make smart decisions about both spending and revenue. Um, but I, I also feel as if we've been having this discussion over the course of 30 years that we have been told about the 
apocalyptic global implications of American debt for a, a very long time. And, you know, I think you can make a fairly serious argument that we have yet to see those predictions come true. And, and I wanted to just posit an alternative scenario to both of you as to how to read the last five to eight years of American economic and political experience. It's certainly been a time of rising debt. Uh, well, deficits have been declining. Debt certainly has been expanding. And so there's no way around that. Um, but there's also a story of truly exceptional economic and political flexibility um, that is exceptional relative to the way that the rest of the world has dealt with the economic fallout of the Great Recession, right? It was this country um, alone amongst equals that was able to engage in pretty classical countercyclical economics, driving deficits up to 10% of GDP and then through a combination of spending discipline and tax increases, driving them down to 3% of GDP. It was, it was this political infrastructure, as dysfunctional as it is, that was responsible for saving two major industries, the uh, auto industry and the financial industry. Um, you, can, you, you can tell a story uh, of the risk presented to the American model, I think, as, as, as Mr. Haas put it, the the risk to, that we detract from the appeal of the American political and economic model purely through the prism of debt. But I would argue that, that as much as we still have to pay attention to that underlying liability, that the story of our economic recovery and of our relative political flexibility to deal with major challenges, um, frankly, over the course of the past 10 years has been a pretty good advertisement for the American model, warts and all. That's my theory. Let me ask you, Ms. Tandon, and you, Mr. Haas, to reflect on what, what the global community, in particular market makers around the world, have taken from the story of America's economic recovery, and, and, and whether or not that does um, uh, provide a pretty substantial counterbalance to risks that come from increased debt in terms of, of the attractiveness of the American economic model. Um, I'm not talking about some of these other questions about you know, what the logistical concerns are regarding other countries holding our debt. In terms of the attractiveness of the American political model, isn't there another story here? I would, I would agree. I would say that uh, you know, first and foremost, there is a way for markets, not governments, but markets to assess the risk of our national debt. It is long-term interest rates. So we have that sense um, day to day. But to speak to your broader point, and, and just, just to say once again that long-term interest rates are currently at very low levels, and truthfully, uh, something we should be mindful of, they are at low levels around the world. Uh, but truthfully, I think the, the, the reality is that if you look at the United States vis-a-vis -vis our competitors and uh, 
uh, allies, and often those are, there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, the United States has been more flexible. That is one of the reasons why we are actually a place where investment is coming to. We have ways to determine how the global economy is looking at the United States, levels of investment in our country vis-a-vis -vis other places. That is a positive story. You are also seeing not only Europe's response, Europe has uh, taken steps towards austerity, their growth rate is lower, you are also seeing issues in the developing world. China's position this year and the steps it took vis-a-vis -vis its stock market has created a real lack of confidence in the world. The United States has a free and open market. So I think on the, the global scale, uh, our relative to position, it's a little hard to argue that our political institutions function very well all the time, but if you look at it from a from a, uh, you know, a 60,000 foot perspective, the United States has taken stronger steps that have created uh, uh, more support for growth than many other countries over the last several years. Yeah. Senator, I actually think the U.S. response to 2008 was both in absolute and relative terms, many aspects of it were, were admirable. And I think some of the individuals involved actually did fairly heroic things from Secretary uh, Paulson to Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner and others. Uh, what I think, the debt though is a different issue. The debt is a long-term issue and there's two things that really concern me. One is demographics. Demographics are super tankers. Uh, you, can, the, you can see where they're heading and we're heading to a society where the ratio of uh, elderly and retired vis-a-vis -vis those who are working age is gonna move in the direction which we don't necessarily want to see. I mean, self-interest, I'm happy about it. I'll, hopefully, I'll be one of those elderly people. But, but the ratio uh, of you know, basically working people are going to have to support a large number of uh, retirees. And the big driver of debt is going to be entitlements. And you look at Medicare, even with certain you know, slowing down of the curve or bending of the curve on cost increases, I still think the day is going to come where Medicare is going to drive out a lot of other spending. Uh, Social Security will contribute to it. And secondly, rates. We're not talking about where rates are now or in three years or five years, but just by historic terms, rates are much closer to lows than they are to highs. It wouldn't take a big, big upward movement in rates to have a tremendous impact on the burden of debt financing. So again, my, my feeling is you may, I mean, it may be that people like me are wrong and that we are exaggerating the potential risk. It's a little bit like fire insurance or preventive medicine. My instincts are, what, let's think about what would be a sensible premium. On the off chance, I'm right. And when we think about the obligation to the future, I think it would be criminal as a society, or negligent, I'll use a better word, for us not to do certain sorts of things, to put us on a safer trajectory. If it turns out the debt problem is not as bad as people like me think, we will not have paid down a great deal. We would not have bankrupted ourselves. We would not have killed off American economic growth. But on the chance that people like me are closer to being right than wrong, then I think it would be seen as an extraordinarily wise investment to do something about it. Mr. Chairman, I would just recommend uh, to, to everyone uh, a simple table that talks about the average age of the United States and all of our competitor countries relative to today in 2030, because demographics certainly is something we should be concerned with, but it's actually another success story of the American political and economic model because between now and 2030, we age by two years and we actually go from being four years 
older on average than China to four years younger than China. Our European competitors are going to be uh, in average ages in the high 40s and, and 50s. And so I agree that Medicare is an enormous liability, but our history of immigration policy uh, is also part of something that should make us feel pretty good about our model. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. I, my first interjection, I uh, never thought uh, these, these hearings sometimes surprise you. I, I thought that likely there would be an agreement that strategically for our nation, uh, having large amounts of debt over time is a problem. Um, I'm hearing that as long as you can outrun when a bear is chasing you, the slowest runner, you're in great shape. And uh, I, I'm just, I'm, this hearing is of great surprise to me. Certainly how you solve the problem, there could be some disagreement, but the fact that we have people sitting on each side of the dais, some of which who perceive that us ad infinitum debt with the demographic changes that are taking place is not a strategic foreign policy issue, not a strategic national security issue, is stunning to me. So this is quite an awakening moment to me. It's somewhat depressing, but quite awakening. Senator Perdue. Well, to be, to be fair, Mr. Chairman, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that I would paraphrase my remarks in the same way well, that you did. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm paraphrasing a number of uh, comments, including a witness. But uh, again, I, I just would think that most Americans would agree that having the amount of indebtedness we have with the trajectory uh, is a problem for our nation, not just from the standpoint of the middle class and economic growth and the lack of productivity that comes with lots of debt over time. We might disagree with how to solve that. I would expect that. Of course, that's the debate that we haven't had that our nation should have, and the purpose of this hearing is to bring awareness to the fact that it's, it's, it's a national security issue, too. It's not just a, an issue relative to our balance sheet and deficits, uh, but generally speaking, I do hear a lack of concern about that, which is somewhat surprising. Senator Perdue. Well, thank you for this hearing. Uh, as it was mentioned earlier, we had a, um, a budget meeting this morning. The head of the GAO came in and talked about the, the budget, the process, and we will, we will see uh, another uh, estimate uh, coming from them tomorrow on certain aspects of our federal spending. But I want to put this in perspective. I think the, the country faces uh, two uh, very serious crises right now, and they're interrelated. One is we've got a global security crisis. And I see it on several fronts, five major levels that, that we are facing as a, as a country. One is we got the rise of traditional powers, Russia and China. Second, we have the terrorist rise. ISIS right now has relationships around the globe, and they have a reach around the globe that we just haven't seen in, in modern history. Um, the third is this threat of nuclear proliferation among rogue nations uh, with a collaboration between North Korea and Iran right now uh, the JCPOA notwithstanding, uh, they both are moving in that direction. Uh, the, the fourth is cyber. I mean, what we see going on in hybrid warfare right now uh, between in what, what Russia is doing in, in Eastern Europe is profound. What we see in our own shores with cyber warfare is not to be ignored. And then last, the thing we don't really talk about is the arms race in space. So all of these things created a pressure on our ability to deal with the global security crisis. I just got back from a week in the Middle East, and I can tell you things are not getting better there. They're getting much worse on a humanitarian level as well as a, as a security level. Development is, is taking a back seat. You talk about a middle class. Middle class is evaporating in the Middle East. 
uh, it's not just declining, it's evaporating. And uh, 11 million people in Syria are on the road going somewhere. So we've got a huge problem there. And at the very time that we face this increasing threat to our country and the free world, by the way, we're spending less on our military than we have in 50 years as a percentage of GDP, 3.1%. If that were to compare to the just the 30-year average adjusted for the uh, taking the surge out, uh, that's about 100 basis points less than the 30-year average, which is about $200 billion today. Now, I'm not espousing that we're spending $200 billion less. I'd like to see some, some efficiency made in the military, but I think it's really important to, to note that we are sitting on the smallest army since World War II, the smallest navy since World War I, and the oldest and smallest air force ever. And I, I just don't understand it. Even Secretary Gates, in his last budget, proposed for F FY16, he proposed a budget that's some $66 billion greater than what we're spending right now. Uh, those are real, real, real numbers. And I've just seen personally how it affects our ability to affect the mission we have. Let me give you just an example very quickly. In Maron, Spain, we stood up a year and a half ago a Marine contingent to defend our embassies in Africa. That's their only mission in life. They have 12 Osprey V-22 airplanes. They're self-contained, they're mobile, they can get there in a matter of hours. The problem is by having 12 planes over there and the delay in buying future V-22s, we now have to move six planes back. That cuts their ability in half. That means they can only defend one embassy at a time in uh, Africa. Now what that means is if, if someone has a minor incident and they mobilize and go down to them, effectively what we need to do in most other embassies is evacuate because we don't have the ability to back up our defense. We could talk about JSTARs, we could talk about the, the, the uh, uh, human capital uh, issue, but I think the bottom line is that we have increased threats. We have a question about are we spending in the right priorities to defend our country and really to protect alliances around the world. At the same time then, as you have a global security crisis, you've got a debt crisis. Now, I'm sorry, I'm just a business guy. But here are the realities. I mean, I, I don't understand why this is even the debate. Honest to God, I don't. I mean, $19 trillion of debt, we talk about 75% of GDP. I feel like the federal government owes Social Security and they owe the trust fund of Medicare those dollars. Those are not to be ignored. So I talk about it being over 100% of GDP today and over $100 trillion of future unfunded liabilities that nobody wants to talk about. The interest rate today is so arbitrary. Seven years, we have not adjusted interest rate. We had one in December. It's the first time the Fed has adjusted interest rates in seven years. Unprecedented. And that quarter point interest, or in, increase in the interest rate, effectively means $50 billion each year of new interest. $50 billion. Imagine what that would do to AIDS. What, imagine what that would do to Alzheimer's or cancer research or to help build the middle class with economic development. Uh, Ms. Tannen, I agree 100%. Our goal right now is to build the middle class. It's under great jeopardy. It's in great jeopardy. Our economy is, is suffering through the worst recovery in 70 years. I understand the number of months of positive GDP growth, et cetera, et cetera, but there's no denying this economy is sitting down. Four and a half trillion dollars the Fed's put in the economy, it's not working. Why? Because of our fiscal policies from this place here in Washington. I'm a business guy. I can go on all day about why this economy is not growing. But I want to get to the question um, very quickly. In the last seven years, Dr. Haas, we borrowed 35% of what we spent as a federal government. We spent $25 trillion running the government. We borrowed $9 trillion. In the next 10 years, the CBO says we're going to add another $9 trillion of debt, which is about 25% of what we'll spend. So the bottom line, it says that mandatory spending is 70% of our budget. That means that every dollar we spend on discretionary money uh, spending that's military and non-military discretion, in my definition, is borrowed because the first dollars that come in go to mandatory. We can't sustain that. There is no way this is sustainable. This is not, 
You have the best characterizations I've heard, and I want you to expound on it. It's a slow-motion crisis. I've never heard anybody else talk about that. But you quote, you said, the bad news is that, that slow-motion crises generate little or no sense of priority, but rather tend to promote complacency. Combine that with political gridlock here in Washington, you can see why the approval rating in this body is 7%. You can see why Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are doing what they're doing in the presidential race. So my question is, as an outsider advisor, how do we break through to create the sense of urgency? And are we, are we charting the right course relative to debt being a threat to national security from a foreign policy? This is a bipartisan committee. I think we find common ground that economically we want to help the middle class. But I think the realization that we've got to come to is that this is not just a crisis for our kids and grandkids. I'm telling you right now, it's here right now. So I'm, I'm asking you as, as an advisor who has a, a picture of this thing, if interest rates were to go up to their 50-year average of 5%, we'd be paying a trillion dollars in interest. There is physically no way on a $4 trillion budget to do that. So please help us with some advice about how to break through here. <laughs> I feel like the kid in class who just got asked the toughest question. Uh, let me say, I'll pick up one thing on what you said, and then I'll, then I'll do my best to answer it. I think it's important, it gets a little bit back at the, one of the previous exchanges, we're not just like everybody else. We have responsibilities in the world to, to say that we've come out of the recession slightly better than others, or our demographic picture is not as bad as others, that doesn't give me a lot of comfort. We have a role in the world which is qualitatively different. And there's no other country that plays such a role in the world to promote global order. And there's no alternative to us. This is not bragging. This is not saying we can do it alone. But we do have a unique role. So we've got to have capacities that others don't have to have. We've, the dollar plays a role that no other currency role, that no other currency plays. So the U.S. is a model that no other country is. So I think the United States is to some extent sui generis. And it's one of the reasons the debt problem and the trajectory worries me so much. Uh, I don't think it's fair to, or smart to say we're better off than others. The question is whether we are and we're heading where we need to be. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt. We're also, we're also um, subsidizing our allies who are spending, on average, much less than 2% on a GDP as well, on military. It's true, but also, I think it's also, when it comes to allies, you, we have to remind ourselves that one of the reasons we support our allies is not as a favor to them, it's a favor to ourselves. And I believe we've gotten an extraordinary return on our investment in Europe and in Asia. I agree. So uh, and when I look at the history of the last 75 years, essentially it's a remarkable history from the vantage point of American national security, both what's happened and what hasn't happened. And one of the reasons is that we have been so supportive uh, of our allies. To answer your question, though, about how we change the conversation, I actually think it's part of a larger conversation, sir. And I think it's part of a conversation about where we take some of these issues like debt and we connect it to national security, which is the logic of this hearing today, and where I think we basically have to do a larger, pardon the expression, public education role about why the world matters, how it affects us, and how the future of this country, what happens, if you will, uh, to the 320 million Americans, how it is not something that we alone are going to determine. We are going to be dramatically and directly affected by what happens amongst the other 95% of the people in the world, about what happens in questions of regional stability, the ability of the globe to deal with some of the challenges you mentioned from cyber to proliferation. So I think the reason, the, the way to have an informed public debate on the consequences of our debt and its trajectory for national security is really to embed it in a larger debate 
about the consequences of what happens in the world for the welfare, the prosperity, the security of the United States. What worries me is Americans often just don't see the connections between what goes on out there and what goes on and will go on here. And I think it is actually a, a public educational challenge for people in your position, for people of mine and others. May, Thank you. may I respond Please. just briefly? Uh, I, I, I do just want to make the broader connection between the decisions Congress makes or can make and the issue of economic growth. So just as an example, you know, large, you know, investments in infrastructure, large-scale investments in infrastructure generally, as you see in other countries, improve productivity of the economy, help foster economic growth. So I, again, want to say I absolutely agree that we do have to address the long-term debt in the, in the United States. We should do that in a reasonable way, and I would agree with Ambassador Haas that there are ways to do that. I just, the question I pose is, for the decisions that Congress is making today, I also think we have to think about how are, the decisions you're making are affecting economic growth, productivity, and in issues like investments we can make in infrastructure, for example, where there has been bipartisan support, uh, and I believe continues to be bipartisan support, that is an area in which you make an investment, it actually improves productivity, and it, over the long run, helps you address your challenges around deficits and debt. The stronger the economy is, the faster it is, the more heat there is to the economy, that does affect our debt numbers as well. And I, I just would point out that there are decisions we all make today that can have that kind of impact. May I just quickly? I'm sure. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more. We've been looking for common ground, and here it is. <laughs> there is an interconnectivity between growing the economy and the debt. You're not going to solve the debt crisis <laughs> over the next 30 years just by growing the economy. But you are not going to do it without doing it as well. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to deal right. with Social Security and Medicare, which is the 800-pound grill in the room, which also affects the economy itself. The drain on resources to support mm -hmm. that uh, takes away from investments in infrastructure. We see it right now in this very budget that we're dealing with today. So I see this as a very major part of a long-term plan. You said it best, Dr. Haas. This is not something that's going to be solved with next year's budget. We've got here over, over 70 years. It's going to take, well, actually, in the last 15 years is when we created it. In the year 2000, we had $6 trillion of debt. Under the Bush administration, we added four and went to 10. Now we're up to 19. There are no innocent parties up here. We're all guilty of this. Somebody said in a testimony, he said, we've seen the enemy, and it's you guys talking about us, and it's right. So the way out of here, I believe, is to save Social Security and Medicare, get the economy growing, solve this budget process, fix that, and get at the underlying cost of health care, which is driving the Medicare costs so dramatically. So I think there's common ground here. In this committee, what I'm uh, worried about is the interconnectivity with this national security uh, issue that we have as a, as a nation and to fulfill our mission around the world to protect our national interests, but also our security here at home. Thank you both. Before Thank moving you. to Senator Flake, I'm, I'll make another interjection. I, I couldn't agree more on the, on the infrastructure issue. And unfortunately, though, what both sides of the aisle have been willing to do is to build infrastructure but not pay for it. So we create these gimmicks. This last go-around was pretty remarkable in its gimmickry. And I would just say again, if it's important to have infrastructure, as I believe it is, and if it is one of those things that actually drives the economy, would it not make sense that we actually paid for it? And 
It's those, it's that fecklessness, it's that unwillingness to face up to the importance of things like that and pay for it that it's, to me, creating this significant down the road, uh, this crisis that's happening over time, uh, national security issue for but us. We just, we, I just want to point out to another area of comedy that we very much agree that we should pay for our infrastructure. Yeah, and, <laughs> and you know, of course, you know, I'm sorry, here in Congress, you run. We run from those issues, and we are creating, unfortunately, uh, I believe, a crisis down the road. Can I say one thing about infrastructure yeah. very quickly? Because this is this one, one of the things that I really like about this hearing is it takes an economic issue and it blends it with national security. Infrastructure is the same thing. Beyond what it may do for jobs, uh, beyond what it, it does two other things. It enhances American competitiveness, which is a national security issue. It also makes us much more resilient. And I don't, it doesn't matter whether it's a man-made terrorist type thing or it's a, it's a storm. Infrastructure enhances American resilience. It's a national security issue. And I think when Congress looks at it, it needs to look at it, I think, as much through that prism as it does through any budgetary prism. And again, just to add to it, we decided to drain our strategic petroleum reserve, which is here for our national security, and to make up a number that we were going to sell this oil for $89 a barrel down the road, we just made it up. Again, it's just uh, it's us creating this, uh, this slow-motion crisis that's occurring. Senator Flake. Thank you, and thanks for calling this hearing. I appreciate the testimony. And Ambassador Haas, you articulated my greatest fear. I often express if people ask what my uh, concern is uh, about the future, it, it's, it's that we will wake up some morning and the financial markets will have already decided that uh, they're not going to buy our debt or we'll have to do it at a premium and then interest rates go up and then we're in a vicious circle and we are Japan uh, for you know decades or generation just lost economic growth and it's just impossible given the austerity measures we'd have to implement um, and and what we'd have to do to have the economic growth that we need uh, but let me just turn to uh, one one aspect of the inability to to uh, have the resources with regard to soft power uh, we generically call it uh, foreign aid it's one of the least popular things to defend here uh, but if you can talk a little about that or uh, are not just funding our national security commitments abroad but ensuring that we are in a position to defend those interests abroad say in Africa uh, much of our ability to go in and help countries combat Boko Haram or al-Shabaab uh, is because of our willingness in prior years to have uh, helped them with the PEPFAR, uh, I'm sorry, with the AIDS crisis through PEPFAR um, or to, uh, to help with other initiatives. Can you talk a little about that and how important that is, our engagements around the world, not just in national security, but prior to that? Thank you, sir. Uh, first thing to say about foreign assistance is you would think we were spending a lot more on it than we are. Uh, so the, the, the controversy or the reputation it has is at variance with the facts, as you know, and as everyone sitting up there knows. We spend quite modest amounts on it. I also think this, it's useful to differentiate among various types. Humanitarian aid, I think it's one of the things that, again, as an American citizen, I feel best about. It's interesting, you mentioned PEPFARs. What an extraordinary initiative that was. It's, it's good old-fashioned humanitarian aid. It's kept a lot of people alive who would otherwise not be alive 
And that's just the sort of thing we should be doing both as a government. We also do more of it as a society than any other country in the world. That's something Americans can be proud of. I differentiate that from developmental kind of aid. And that gets a little bit more complicated, but I think the Millennium Challenge effort was a really important and useful intellectual and political innovation because it became much more conditional in linking assistance for countries that were, as you know, adopting certain types of governance uh, reforms, which again, I thought was a good time, all of which is different than security aid, whether it's in the economic form, ESF, or uh, military aid. But we, we need to do all of it. I actually thought, when I was in government, one of the most valuable and cheapest forms of uh, security aid were things like IMET, the training and the educational assistance. And for very small amounts of money, in absolute and relative terms, we could bring leading, say, people at mid-career levels over to United States staff schools. They would get exposed to American theories of civil military relations, to professionalism. They would go back, in many cases, through, military, uh, through the military ranks or through political ranks. They would have disproportionate influence in their, or significant influence within their own societies. It was a tremendous investment. Uh, in promoting rule of law and respect for civil military relations. So I, I actually think all things be equal that foreign assistance writ large turns out to be a pretty good return on investment uh, for, the, uh, for the United States. And it comes back to what we're talking about here. It's one of the things you don't want to see crowded out. It's, it's too easy for a lot of things to get crowded out because by the time you're paying interest on the debt and you're dealing with entitlements, national security and discretionary domestic spending they're, they're, the, they're the collateral damage, if you will, of where we're heading on debt. And we've got to figure out ways to protect them. The only way I know how to protect them is some combination of dealing with the drivers of debt and dealing with, with you know, and adopting policies that uh, accelerate economic growth. Well, I appreciate that. It's often humorous to hear uh, you know, this discussion about a building a wall uh, the Mexican border and having the Mexicans pay for it. Uh, some were saying, well, let's just cut off foreign aid if they, if they won't. Uh, that was talked about. Uh, foreign aid to Mexico, there really is none other than some cooperation on drug initiatives and things like that. So it's often misunderstood and it's often assumed that it's a lot larger uh, than it really is. But I appreciate uh, the comments in this hearing. I do uh, ha have a huge concern. This is bigger than, than any concern out there in terms of terrorism or nuclear proliferation, because if we don't deal with this, we won't be able to respond to any of those threats. Uh, so it's the root of all of it. And uh, I do worry that we're really on borrowed time here, um, the point at which other countries will have hit that, that point where the financial markets decide. We've passed that. We're just the best house in a bad neighborhood. And, and uh, I don't know how much longer uh, we can go, but what I do know is that once we, we wake up that morning when the markets have already decided, it's too late then without a good deal of pain and suffering for a number of, of uh, years. And so I, I hope we reach the realization before to deal with this, and everyone knows uh, what it's going to look like, at least the broad parameters we've got to bring in uh, more revenue, not necessarily by raising rates, but by closing loopholes on the tax code. We've got to do some kind of change CPI on Social Security or limit the growth thereof. Uh, Medicare, it's going to be some bigger forms of means testing. I mean, any, any real solution is going to have those broad contours at least. Uh, I just uh, wish we'd get to it sooner rather than later.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, if I could, just again, uh, since I didn't use my time on the front, most entities in the world try to protect themselves from the, the market fluctuations that occur. And what I hear so many people in this hearing saying, well, the market's been good to us, so what do we have to worry about? Well, the fact is that a great nation or a great company or a great entity is constantly thinking about those things that could occur and trying to ensure that they've done everything they can to protect themselves from it, whereas what we're doing is just rolling along and saying, hey, these guys have been good to us, and, you know, we're, the, we're faster than the slowest other country in the world, so we're going to be okay. And I, I just, I, I never expected that to come out of this hearing today. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Well, first, I'm glad you're holding this hearing. It's a very interesting issue that I think brings into focus the broader narrative that uh, Mr. Haas spoke about. Um, you know, one of the things that's happening in this country that's led to some of this turmoil and, and vibrant debate in this political cycle has been that the world has changed dramatically. I mean, that we used to be a national economy and to some extent still are but we're deeply impacted more than ever before by global currents. Global markets, what's happening halfway around the world, foreign policy is economic policy more today than it has ever been. I think someone used a statistic, 5% of the world. We're 5% of the world population, 40% of its economy, but 5% of the world's population. And the good news is that there's millions of people around the world that were once starving who now buy things, and they want to buy things from us and trade with us and travel. This is an extraordinary development. It's a positive, but it has implications. And it's one of the things that's been so disruptive in, in the political debate is that we no longer fully control everything that happens in our economy because so much of it is tied to something that happened in some remote place halfway around the world. And the debt is a part of that. The second is this issue of debt. Look, if we were any other country looking at these numbers, we'd be in a debt crisis. The reason why we're not is because the world still has confidence in America because they believe Winston Churchill's statement that Americans always get it right after they've tried everything else first. And they believe we'll ultimately get this right and we'll always pay our bills and we'll get this straightened out. So the stability of our political process and its ability to solve problems has implications on this as well. And, and, it, and I agree with you, Mr. Chairman. I don't know how this could be a question that the debt is not an issue because if you think about what happened to Greece, if that were the United States or what's happening in Puerto Rico as a territory happened to the broader country, the world would freak out. I don't know if there's a scientific term for that, but I can just tell you the world would flip out. If, if this, the most important and indispensable nation, uh, were to have a debt crisis that would call into a, a question its ability to pay its bills, it would have dramatic global implications. And so this is a major issue. I would also say that you don't run up an $18 trillion debt with one party. This is a bipartisan debt. Uh, this is a, people say there's no bipartisanship in Washington. There most certainly is. There's an $18 trillion debt to prove it. Both parties have had control at different times, and they have they have written checks that they couldn't cash, and we're facing the consequences of that. But part of this debate has led us to this point, and I think Senator Flake alluded to it when he talked about foreign aid, this concept somehow that if only we did less around the world, we could take care of this issue. Foreign, debt, foreign aid is the one I always hear about. When I explain to people, I think it's 1% of our budget, maybe. maybe I think it's maybe even less. Um, you're not, people always use foreign aid, where if we just cut foreign aid, we can pay for it, and you fill in the blank, and it just doesn't add up. But we never talk about the costs of not engaging in the world beyond foreign aid. So now you basically have someone, I don't want to get into all that stuff, let me just say you have a major voice in American politics <laughs> today saying, we can save a bunch of money, let's just get out of NATO. We could save a bunch of money, let's just get out of our relationship with Japan and South Korea and put them in charge of their own security. And I guess what I'd ask both of you to comment on is, what would the world look like for America 
let me just back up one more point. I don't mean to take up all this time because I want you to be able to answer this, but part of this economic growth that we've benefited from would have never happened had the U.S. not helped Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War, would have never happened had there not been a NATO, would have never happened had there not been a U.S. supporting South Korea for all those years where South Korea's economy at one point, and I believe as late as the 70s, was smaller than the North Korean economy. And then today they're the ninth largest economy in the world, I believe, and they are a contributor to foreign aid. They are a donor, not a recipient. Japan is another successful story, a nation we went to war with and then helped rebuild, and today is one of our strongest alliances in the world. So my question is, what would the world look like now? What opportunities would we not have? Because none of this growth that we've had up to now would have been possible without those relationships and without that stability. What would the world look like economically and ultimately for our ability to pay our debts long term if America were to walk away from its security agreements with Japan, with South Korea, and with NATO? And I know each of these are separate. And I'll add, let me close with this just to be clear that I'm on the record. Japan, I think South Korea this year will contribute $800 billion mm -hmm. uh, to in Japan as well. and, 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 and defense. The Japanese have stepped up uh, in, in what they are doing in collective self-defense mm -hmm. capabilities. And of course, NATO needs to be repurposed and modernized to face new threats. But, but the truth is they're an indispensable part of the U.S. role in the world. So what are the economic costs and ultimately the impact on our ability to pay off the debt if the United States alliance with NATO, South Korea, and Japan is called into question? Let me just say, uh, I would predict that any near-term savings would be overwhelmed by medium-term and long-term costs. Uh, it would be penny-wise and pound-foolish. Uh, one is your basic premise, Senator, is right, which is we have, there's been an enormous economic dividend of global stability. If one looks at the last 75 years, the, abs the relative absence of great power co conflict compared to the, pre to the previous century uh, has been a tremendous uh, advantage for ourselves and others. The fact that you didn't have proliferation by Japan, which I think would have changed the entire dynamic of Japanese-Chinese uh, relations. The fact that the Cold War ended peacefully uh, and ended in the way it did, with NATO and the West winning and the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union uh, essentially losing. Uh, that all created the conditions uh, for the extraordinary economic success uh, of these decades. I understand that economics feeds into security, but security is even more of a prerequisite, I would argue, for economic uh, success. So I think calculations of our quote-unquote savings uh, even if the host nation support and offsets you mentioned didn't exist, I think are, are way too pinched. I think it ignores the larger historical truth and the dynamics that if we were to do less, others will do more. And that probably would, I think it would probably be more than the circuits diplomatically could, could handle. I, I don't want to see Europe get interesting again. I don't want to see Asia, the Asia Pacific get real interesting. The part of the world that's all too interesting is the Middle East. And that is the part of the world where the United States is now doing appreciably less than it's done in recent history. And that ought to be something of a strategic warning to us. When we are not prepared to play a significant role, it, the, the vacuum tends to get filled by others who are going to have agendas that may be very, very different from our own. So yes, it costs us 3 3.5% of GDP to do what we do in the name of uh, national security, defense plus intelligence and so forth. I think it's a bargain. It is a bargain given the strategic and economic benefits, and I think we have to understand it and we have to explain it.
I would just add to that. I mean, I, I completely agree with Ambassador Haas. I would just add perhaps a, a, to make it a, a tad more pointed. I mean, withdrawing from NATO, creating deep uh, insecurity, military insecurity in the Asia Pacific region could have devastating economic impacts uh, at any given point. I mean, the reality is that the United States deeply benefits, as does the global economy, but does deeply benefit from stability in Europe and in Asia. Asia is a growing source of growth. The United States is still the strongest area of growth, but these are areas in which having that sense, that security blanket uh, keeps real disruption at bay. And the idea that we would withdraw, particularly from the uh, from the Asia Pacific region at a time where China uh, is at least taking actions that are hard to explain, seems to me to create deep uh, economic challenges over the next several decades. And in terms of issues that we would have to deal with, uh, I say again, you know, I think there is broader agreement on addressing the national debt, but that kind of change would lead to fundamental problems for. Uh, U.S. for the U.S. economy, any aspect of the U.S. economy that relates to uh, trade and globalization. Just my point in asking that question is I want to be clear that doing all these things that I've just mentioned will do nothing to deal with the debt, but would in fact trigger a worsening debt, in my opinion, because of the additional costs that would be imposed on our economy. So, thank you. Seems like you felt the need to express yourself based on comments you've heard over the course of the last several months. Not only that, I mean, it's just the, yeah, <laughs> sure. But, but also just kind of seeing the world's reaction to this stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're asking us, is this really going to happen? Or um, it's having an impact on people's psyche. They're wondering, where's America headed? And I just want to make some reassurance that uh, this isn't going to happen. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. <laughs> Senator Markey. I'm, I'm glad you can provide that assurance. <laughs> Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and thank both of you for uh, being here today. Um, you know, the way President Obama has viewed his term of office is that he has tried to look at areas where there could be a pruning in the federal budget, but at the same time, there has to be an investment strategy in healthcare and education and infrastructure in the future. Uh, and that's pretty clearly the only way in which we can compete in the long run with our economic rivals uh, around the world. They each have a business plan. China has a business plan. Japan has a business plan. And so we need to be able to say we have a business plan as well in our country. So if we're not investing in the clean energy sector, if we're not investing at NIH, if we're not investing in uh, cyber technology, if we're not investing in all of the areas which have been identified as the growth areas, and if we're not educating our population, especially since 50% of it is going to be minority, uh, and we pull back from those sectors, well, we're playing right into the hands of our enemies, um, or our rivals, our adversaries, economically, on the planet. Just as simple as that. And so while I hear, you know, philosophically that people want the defense budget to be untouched, but at the same time, the federal deficit has to be reduced dramatically. Well, you're looking at, you, there's another word for that. That's the future that you're talking about. That's kind of how we project our power. It's through this incredible uh, economic resource that we represent to the rest of the world. 
Uh, now, I'd just like to move over for a second, if I could, over to the defense budget. You know, there's a proposal to have $1 trillion of new nuclear weapon systems uh, in our country over the next 20 years. That's a crazy number from my perspective. We already have more than enough in order to accomplish those goals. Uh, so I'd ask if either of you, since that's kind of the context of this discussion, uh, we're in the Foreign Relations Committee, the projection of power by nuclear uh, weapons capacity is clearly now injected itself into the presidential campaign. Uh, and I guess my question is, is that a good expenditure for the United States, uh, Ms. Tannen, for us to put another trillion dollars into nuclear weapons? Uh, are we really gonna buy ourselves a trillion dollars worth of additional security in our country, or, or is it just gonna be added on to the already unnecessary expenditures in that nuclear era when we should be trying to reduce the number of nuclear weapons that the US, US, USSR, um, uh, uh, Russia, and uh, China and others have? We definitely believe that we can uh, maintain our military strength uh, with, uh, with a reduced stockpile. Uh, so that is not an area in which you know, we think we need major expansions. But I, I do want to touch on the broader point you're making, which I think, uh, and I, I, I hope that there's also broader agreement on this topic. I think uh, we think it makes sense, I personally think it makes sense to think of the decisions we make from a competitiveness standpoint. And from a competitiveness standpoint, uh, from my point of view, investments in infrastructure, investments in research, NIH research, other areas of research which have really led to economic competitiveness from uh, the growth of the pharmaceutical industry to other areas where we've made technological advancements. That is, you know, the, the broad point I would make in this, in this hearing on this issue of debt is really that we should address the long-term de debt as a problem, as a challenge for this country. We should address deficits, uh, absolutely. We believe we can do this. We believe we can take steps that are balanced. I agree with Senator Flake uh, that it does mean additional revenue as well as additional savings in, a, in, in particular areas. But the challenge around the debate about debt, over over the last several years is it has often meant that we don't make those investments in making our country more competitive. And I completely take your point that that is exactly, uh, you know, in my view, the wrong-headed approach, that we should not forsake investments that lead to competitiveness in for the U.S. economy over the long term because of our concerns about the national debt, stopping that. I do believe we can actually take steps in this Congress today to address deficits uh, in a smart strategy, in a balanced approach, while maintaining those investments. And in fact, the Center for American Progress has laid out a strategy to get to zero deficit. So, that, so I, I, I ask this question in the context of the world in which we're living, mm -hmm. looking at the Middle yes. East, looking at you know, other flashpoints around the planet. And from my perspective, we just have to learn how to work smarter, not harder, when we're making defense expenditures. Mm -hmm. uh, when our, his, our history has been, all of the above, please. Just keep checking it off. So right now, again, the Pentagon wants an air-launched nuclear cruise missile. Mm -hmm. And my question is, 
do we really need a new air launch nuclear cruise missile? Uh, is that going to add to our defense if it comes out of the kinds of programs which we need uh, in a modern world uh, where nuclear weapons are not usable? And we just had a good referendum in America on that issue uh, because if we actually needed to use them, we got plenty right now. So could you deal with that, Mr. Haas, uh, in terms of budgetary priorities from a defense perspective for our country over the next generation? I'd be happy to, Senator. Thank you. Uh, First, uh, all things being equal, I don't think the defense budget is the place to go if you're thinking about resolving the debt issue, point one. We're talking just over 3% of GDP. Uh, what, to use your number, if we're talking about spending a trillion dollars over 20 years on nuclear systems, we're talking in 10 years about spending over a trillion dollars a year on Medicare. The spending that's driving the debt will not be defense, it's going to be entitlements. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, within defense, if you're asking me, if you told me I have to make a choice where to put a marginal dollar in defense, I'd much prefer to put it on various types of conventional systems, sure. Uh, I'd want to think about what we need to maintain, in particular, air and naval, an adequate air and naval presence in the Asia Pacific. I th what we need to maintain a sufficient air and ground presence uh, on, on the European continent, enough special operations forces to deal with counterterrorism in the Middle East and, and around the world. I haven't done, Senator, enough of an analysis, so I could say 500 billion as opposed to a trillion or 300 billion on nuclear uh, would be uh, sufficient. I just, I have, I'm not up to date enough on it, so I can't uh, tell you that. But I mean, so it's, all I would say is I don't think the basic debate necessarily is this form of defense spending as opposed to that form of defense spending. I think we have to look at defense, which is one form of discretionary, as opposed to other discretionary, and even more as opposed to non-discretionary spending. And, and a lot of the conversation here today has been about the two largest forms of non-discretionary spending, which is the financing of the debt, given rates, what it costs us to pay for the debt, and second of all, entitlements. Those are going to be the real drivers here, much more than discretionary, domestic, or, or national security. And, and I would say, if I may, Mr. Chairman, that uh, when you're going over to entitlement programs, you're talking about grandma and grandpa, uh, and you're saying they're the ones that must sacrifice. They're the ones that have to take the cuts. And if you're looking over in, even at Medicaid, increasingly, Medicaid is a program for grandma and grandpa to be able to stay in nursing homes with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's, with these diseases. That's the fastest growing part of the Medicaid budget. And so if you, you know, so if you, as we talk about this, we're talking about education, healthcare, infrastructure on the discretionary investment side. Uh, and if you're looking at non-discretionary, you're looking at grandma and grandpa, and realistically, it's not gonna happen. You know, people are not gonna step up and say, we're gonna dramatically slash either Social Security or Medicare, all the kinds of Medicaid programs that are going to grandma and grandpa in our country. And so uh, just a realistic discussion about it uh, and accepting expert opinion that this debt that we have is not actually right now a threat to our country is, I think, a more realistic and honorable way of talking to the American people about it uh, because we're, we are able to uh, honor our obligations. Uh, uh, and, and at the same time, however, we have to look at the programs that should be looked at, that should be um, re-examined. And I would actually put the nuclear weapons programs in a, uh, in a very high category. And I'm gonna make an amendment out on the floor before the end of the year on a lot of these nuclear programs 
uh, and it'll be a continuation kind of, of the debate that we've been having in the country over the last two weeks about them, um, because it's a good way for the American people to access how the defense community views uh, the kinds of weapon systems that they are believing that we need um, to protect America in the years ahead. And I just, I think we all saw the horrified reaction of the American people when they thought that nuclear weapons were gonna become more usable in the years ahead. Just, I think, something that's unrealistic, not gonna happen, and not anything the American people wanna have happen. But we thank both of you for your fantastic service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's a fascinating hearing. Thank you for calling. And I apologize I didn't hear your testimony, but I read it. Listening to the questions, I'm kind of reminded of a story about a South Georgia Baptist deacon whose river in his city flooded. He got the warning call that if he didn't get up on his road, roof, he was going to die. So he got up on the roof of the house in the middle of the night. To, the waters kept rising. A boat came by from the Red Cross a few minutes and said, come on, jump in the boat. We'll save you. He said, no, the Lord's going to save me. I'm not worried. A few minutes later, another boat came by and said, come on, jump in the boat. We're going to save you. He said, no, I don't have to worry. The Lord's going to save me. Then pretty soon a helicopter came over and dropped down a harness and said, please get on. The river's about to go over your house. You're going to die. And he said, no, don't worry about that. The Lord's going to save me. A few minutes later, he was at St. Peter's Gate. And when St. Peter came out, he said, what in the world are you doing here? And he said, well, I drowned. The water went over my roof. And St. Peter said, well, we sent two boats and a helicopter to save you. Why didn't you get on? <laughs> I think sometimes we're not looking at the boats that are passing us by to save ourselves. I would respectfully disagree that the debt is not a crisis. It is a major crisis. And one of these days, the water is going to go over the roof, and we're caught bad. Now, Mr. Haas, you, you've got a great paragraph in here, which I want to play on for my single statement and question. You all call this a slow-motion crisis, which is like the waters rising and finally getting the Baptist deacon. But there are solutions, and in your testimony, you said the sequester is not one of them. It ignores entitlements and favors spending, and spending over investment in the present over the future. With regard to Senator Markey's statement a minute ago about Medicare, uh, Medicaid reform, Medicare reform and Social Security being about grandma and granddad, that is not true. In 1983, when I was 39 years old, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill made a deal. They said Social Security is going broke in 2015 unless we save it. And they came in and they said, okay, anybody who's born after 1943, you're not going to be eligible for Social Security until age 66, not age 65. I was 39 and 83. I was born in 44, so they took away my 65th year of eligibility, or the first year of eligibility, for Social Security. I didn't, then I didn't know I'd live to be 65 first. Second, I didn't think the government was going to have any money left then anyway. So I didn't really miss it. And when I got to age 66 and finally qualified, I didn't realize I'd missed a year. So it's not about the savings and the significant contribution you can make to the debt is not about grandma and granddad that day. It's about my grandchildren and my children. Just as the eligibility of Social Security will go to 67 in a couple more years because of that reform, and eventually it's going to need to go to 68, and then to 69, and then to 70. We need to reform and calibrate the formula as people live longer and they're more productive. And the savings are astronomical. Senator Corker was with a group that went to the White House. Remember when Ron Johnson did the calculation about the true value of the debt a few years ago? The debt at that time was $18 trillion. But if you take entitlements and leave them to, to go on their own, and you don't raise a single dollar in taxes or spend any more money on discretionary spending, the $18 trillion debt went to $104 trillion in 10 years. The time value of money and the compounding of interest is what all of us have to recognize in this solution. So I would just, kind of, I mean, we got to do spending reforms. We got to do revenue, as you said, and things like that. But we need to wake up to the reality that our long-term obligations factored now can ease the pain for grandma and granddad today, but save Social Security for my grandchildren in the future. 
Thank you, Senator. Uh, so I'm glad you, you gave me a chance to respond to some extent also to Senator Markey. Uh, Senator Markey's a good friend, but I don't think phrasing the issue or framing the issue as grandma and grandpa is, is fair. Uh, we want to make sure it's there for grandma and grandpa, but also for their kids and their grandkids. And that seems to me that we keep in mind certain statistics. If you're 65 years old today, the average American's gonna live for at least another 20 years. 75 years ago, if you were 65, you did not have anything like that kind of lifespan ahead of you. So we've gotta to continue to raise eligibility ages for both Medicare and for Social Security. We've gotta means test it, it's ridiculous that people who are relatively well off, someone like myself, would you know, be in a similar position for someone who was uh, impoverished. So I think we need to take a, a look at these, at these programs. So for the people who are truly needy, it's there. That's part of the social contract, I get it. And that's just what we owe these people. But I think we have to, again, take into fact changing demographic realities. We've gotta take into account uh, you know, questions of income and wealth, and then we can adjust these programs so we have the coverage we need as a, uh, as, as a society. And that's, that's gotta be part of the, that's gotta be part of the, the conversation. It can't be all or nothing. It's gonna, th these programs are gonna have to be adjusted. And the good news is they can be adjusted so the bulk of these programs are there for those Americans who really need them. That's gotta be, that's gotta be the goal. May, may I respond? Sir, absolutely. Is that, okay, is that okay to the issue of healthcare costs in particular and social security? I, I, I do think that we should recognize with some, some note of optimism that we actually have seen real changes in the Medicare program. If you looked at CBO's projections in January of 2010 versus what they are for currently this decade, we have had a trillion dollars of savings in the Medicare program in those projections. That is because we've had lower national health expenditures. That I think is in part, although not purely all about the Affordable Care Act, but it is in part driven by the payment reform changes in the Affordable Care Act. I think it is important to note that there are changes we can make to the Medicare program that are, do not ensure that beneficiaries are bearing all of the burden of those changes. And I think that we have put forward ideas at the Center for American Progress to actually have changes in ways we address the way we pay for the Medicare program. Those are important parts of a discussion to ensure that we have savings over the long term in the entitlement programs. I think the question is, how do we balance all of these issues together? Certainly, I'll say again, that I think it's important to address uh, these challenges, but also think about the impact our decisions, the decisions Congress makes when it chooses to reform entitlements, uh, not invest in education, how it actually has impact on real people in the country. And the reality is that Social Security is a good example. Retirement savings are dwindling in the United States. Fewer people have the savings that they've had in previous generations. So when you make a decision to change the social security system or cut social security for beneficiaries through the way you assess that, you're doing so at a time when the majority of social security beneficiaries are actually have less retirement cushion than they've had in the past. So I, my view of this is no topic should be off, off the table. Of course, we should address all these issues, but we should also look at how it actually impacts people in the context of the society. And when, just one last point, raising the Medicare age, I should just point out, 
actually increases national health expenditures because it cost shifts to uh, the private employer system um, and increases costs in that way. So I, I, I think of that as a strategy that is not particularly useful to address lowering health care costs overall. I just add a comment, but, and this is my important point here, we already means test Medicare premiums. You mm -hmm. pay your Medicare premium, the amount of your premium you pay to Medicare is in part based on your income in the previous tax year. Yes. And the better your lifestyle was, as Mr. Haas said, or your revenue was, the higher the premium you pay. I think it's up to almost $1,000 a month if you're a very wealthy person versus 125 if you're not, and those are approximate numbers. But my only, my only comment was, discretionarily we spend about $1.1 trillion a year in, in entitlements and benefit programs and the safety net, none of which I'm opposed to. We spend about $2.6 trillion. We've got to be willing to do in the future what Tip O'Neill and Reagan did in 33 years ago, and that's look at the out years, the time value of money and the compounding interest and the miracle of discipline in financial. We can, there are a lot of things we can do that won't hurt granny or granddad, won't hurt sick and elderly, but will make our future a lot brighter and our debt and our deficit a lot lower. We can't do the whole enchilada on that, but we can do a significant part of it because it is the largest contributor to the overall debt that we have. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Um, I have one question, then I'm going to summarize. Um, Ms. Tandem, you would agree, I think, that, you know, we have people up here all the time talking with us about investments to make our economy stronger and our country stronger, infrastructure, education, things like that. You would agree that our, I would hope, that our unwillingness to deal with the entitlement issues thus far is what is crowding out, on the other hand, uh, much of that investment, would you not? I, I guess I would just point out that we have, you, the Congress has made a series of decisions that actually have had series of savings in an entitlement program. But you, you would, you would say, so, first of all, I, I want to say that on the Social Security issue, I, I agree that there are seniors who are very dependent upon that and have put forth policies to say that, look, for people like me who've, you know, had some good fortune in life, that mine should not increase near as rapidly as those people who are more fully dependent upon. I mean, that's one way of making this work better for people, and I, I agree with you 1,000%. The decisions that we make here affect real live people, and we all know people that are very dependent upon this, and we need to take that into account. But let me go back to the competitiveness issue. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see how anybody could debate that our unwillingness to solve with actuarial changes, not draconian changes, our unwillingness to deal with the entitlement programs is what is putting the pressure on those things that many people think would make our nation stronger. It's, it's, it's our unwillingness over here for the, because of the types of comments that Senator Markey made that were heartfelt, but it's that that's keeping us for, from uh, doing much of what you would believe, I think, would be uh, things that would make our country stronger. I actually think that Congress has had a great deal of difficulty doing uh, having an honest discussion about revenues. I mean, if we go through the last few budget debates, it does seem that there was more uh, more agreement on uh, on issues around entitlements than there was on revenues. But 
I, I have to say I am an outside observer to that process, and um, and 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 you would know, you know, the, the committee would know better than I. But as an outside observer, it has has seemed that it's been more difficult for the Congress to address an issue around revenue and a balanced approach that I appreciate Senator Flake and others have talked about in this room, but it seems like that has been a difficult issue as well as perhaps entitlements. Well, just for what it's worth, having been in the center of those conversations yes. at the White House, uh, I think the issue has been, and I think Senator Isaacson was a part of that also, the issue has been the, the, there is a, 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 an openness, more than an openness on the revenue side, as long as people feel that there's a real solution being proposed on the other side. I mm -hmm. think what people don't want to see happen is an increase in revenues without, a commen without commensurate actuarial changes to try to solve the other issue. I think people want to put forth a solution, uh, not something that uh, is a Band-Aid. Did you want to make a comment, Ambassador? I was getting ready to summarize, but you look like you wanted to grab the I just, let me say this, I, I, I've had fun jousting with you a little bit, Miss Tandem, and I, uh, and here I am always yeah, you trying have a, to agree. you have a very warm personality and have some degree of humor, and I, I appreciate <laughs> you being here. I, I Other did people say it's more than that. I thought that, uh, I'm sure I'd, if I knew you better, I'd be saying the same thing. I, <laughs> when I read your testimony and, or heard about it and, and read pieces of it before coming in, um, I expected that we were going to have a hearing mm -hmm. that there was an, a, a central agreement over the fact that our national debt is a strategic problem for our country. And it's such a privilege to serve in this body every day is like is getting a PhD in multiple topics. We have incredible access to information here. But I thought your testimony in some ways was fringe testimony somewhat crackpotty in some ways relative <laughs> to the debt, I'm just being honest, and I thought it wasn't going to aid the discussion. But what I found in listening today is there truly is um, a difference, um, a huge difference, I might add, relative to uh, on each side of the aisle relative to, to the, the importance of us not having the kind of indebtedness that we have today. That is something that is something I've learned today. I, I'm shocked by that in many ways. Um, it discourages me relative to our nation actually solving this problem. Typically, we have an agreement on the problem. We have a disagreement on how to solve the problem. Today, what I find is we have a disagreement as to whether there is a problem or not, and I find that incredibly discouraging. So I want to apologize to you, because actually your testimony represents, uh, it appears to me, a widely held view uh, on one side of the aisle, which is something that I just didn't expect Mr. prior Chairman, to this meeting. Could I just, I, I know you want to close, but can I just... Um, uh, impose upon your good humor for one more moment, uh, and that is, uh, I disagree with that uh, that summary, and I just want the record to reflect that. I've done some very unpopular things to reduce the deficit, including cutting spending, voting for spending cuts that were popular, and voting for tax increases which are never popular, in order to reduce the deficit and to bring our budget into balance. I don't like deficits. 
particularly when you're wealthy enough and strong enough to be able to pay for it, and I think America is strong enough and wealthy enough to pay our bills. So I don't like deficits. But the point I think that some of us on the Democratic side have been making is that how you deal with the deficit is just as important as the deficit. And if the consequences of dealing with the deficit is to deny your, the, the governmental sector, which is a critical part of the economy, to function, you can hurt the economy and hurt your country. Or if you don't make the investments, and it could be in soldiers, it could be in guns, it could be in schools, it could be in water infrastructure, if you don't make those investments, you're compromising America's security. But I don't want you to leave with the impression that the Democratic side of this committee is insensitive to the deficit. We're not. And some of us served in the Congress when we voted to balance the federal budget, and we actually got it balanced. So we look forward, and I thought some of our comments, I fully agree that you got to take a look at all aspects. Nothing should be left off, and you got to look at spending. You got, I think you got to look at the tax code if you want to know the truth. I think our tax code is terribly inefficient. And you can, uh, as I have shown by a proposal I made on a progressive consumption tax, you can have the largest, the lowest marginal rates in the industrial world uh, and, and have a more progressive tax code than we have today and bring in the revenues you need in order to pay our bills. So there's ways that we can do this working together. So I would hope that in regards to the budget issues, that Democrats and Republicans could learn from each other. We're both concerned about the debt and the deficit. I think Democrats are very concerned that there be adequate revenues in order to be able to make the investments we think are important for the growth of our nation. I think Republicans are very concerned that we don't hide the cost of spending, particularly on mandatory spending, and that we have a, a reasonable, uh, foreseeable, uh, affordable programs in the future. And I think we could listen for, to each other and learn from each other and, and place a blueprint that would not only not only provide for the economic growth of our country, but deal with the security issues that you have raised and the reason why we're having this hearing, because large, uncontrollable debt can compromise America's security, no question about it. I, I would just say that I appreciate you saying that, and I've been in meetings with you where um, uh, one of the first meetings we had when I barely knew you was over fiscal issues uh, one evening at a home, and I was surprised by, actually, that uh, because of the state you represent, your seriousness about that issue. Um, I, I will say, uh, again, just you didn't hear some of the questioning that took place, and uh, um, uh, I was somewhat surprised by some of the commentary here and the seemingly uh, thinking that the markets are treating us well. We really don't have a, an issue here that's particularly important, as was... Uh, laid out in Ms. Tandem's testimony, and I'm just saying to you, after listening to the entire session today, um, I never would have thought there would have been a difference, sure, as to how to solve it. I got that, and that's the tough work that has to be done, and both sides are going to have to give, and I agree both sides can learn from each other. But I, I leave here today with a sense that uh, there's also a significant difference among members as to whether this is a strategic issue or not, and that's not what I expected to come out of this hearing. But I thank you both. Um, Y'all, you know, you've actually spurred one of the most interesting discussions we've had here. Um, 
I appreciate your testimony. If, if possible, we'd like to leave the record open until the close of business Friday, and if you would do your best to respond to written questions as, as soon as you practically can. We know you both have day jobs. Uh, thank you for your testimony again, and uh, uh, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you.